Well, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And our text this morning will be verses 13 and 14. Now we're going to read all the way to verse 18 because I want to set the context before we go into our text this morning. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning at verse 13. Paul writes as he is superintended by the Holy Spirit, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you do not grieve as the rest do, rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. There ends the reading of God's word. Join with me this morning in prayer before we tackle our text here this morning. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. And again, we continually give thanks for your word that has been given to us so that we might know who you are. For without it, we would be left to guess. And so we praise and thank you that you put it in human language and in our language so that we can understand it. And so we praise and thank you that we're not left alone. We have the Holy Spirit and therefore he can illuminate the truths here this morning. And so again, I pray that he would teach our hearts and that he would be the teacher this morning. I pray in your name. Amen. What you know matters. What you understand and know to be true matters. This is why we always say that doctrine matters. If we remember a long time back, we went through the book of 2 Peter and we talked about what you know protects you from false teachers. Knowledge helps you live the Christian life. It protects you all the time and it it informs how you live all the time. Why are you here this morning? Because the Bible tells us to gather together as believers. So we do. Right? Who who do we marry? We're called to marry other believers. Why? Because the Bible tells us to. And so what we know informs how we live as a believer. It applies to all areas of our life. And so the more we know, the more that we can live a Christian life as it is supposed to be lived. And it is applicable to all areas of our life. And I would say this, the greater the area and the the more concern we have in an area, the more we need to know God's truth in that area. And so too it is here with the Thessalonians this morning who need to be filled in on what they don't know, so it affects how they live. Now we've been going through 1 Thessalonians and we have been really, we launched off, I would say, in chapter three, verse 10, where Paul is speaking to the Thessalonians and he says, I want to be with you. And then he says this phrase, because I want to fill in what is lacking in your faith. In other words, I want to impart to you the things that you need to know in order to live the Christian life as it should be for you to grow in maturity as a believer, to be sanctified. And in that, he's going to give practical instructions. This is the way you live. And then he's also going to give instructions about things that they don't know so that they can live in a way that is ultimately, as he says, pleasing to God. Pleasing to God. So he prays for that. And then Paul, realizing that he can't be there, now is going to give instructions in this book in order to fill in what is lacking for them and 
specifically in God-pleasing conduct. And so at the beginning of chapter 12, again, he fills in a weakness in their understanding in the areas of sexual purity and in brotherly love. And he says, here's an area that you need to excel more, you need to grow in, and here's some instruction in this area. And then as he comes now to chapter 13, verses 13 to 18, Paul is looking at another area where they need instruction. And they need instruction about the dead in Christ. This is a phrase that we will look at over the next few weeks, but he says, here's an area where they need some information. He's dealing with their grief and he deals with their faint-heartedness in this area. And it's an area of significance. It's not a small area. The believers had lost other believers. Death is a major event in life. And so he wants to address them in that area. And so Paul will go on and he will deal with that. And then in verses 5 to 11, sorry, in chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, he will again deal with their deficiency and their understanding of the day of the Lord. And then through the rest of the book, he will address various areas of Christian conduct in the church. But here Paul begins in this third area of deficiency, what is lacking in their faith and what is lacking in the beginning of verse 13 and really into chapter 5 is their understanding of future things and how they relate to the present. What's going to take place in the future will ultimately affect how they live in the present. And there's a disconnect there. And Paul is going to come in and he's going to fix that. And so they really have a deficiency in, fir- in two areas. First of all, they, they, as Paul says here, they, have, they grieve with, as those who have no hope. There's an excessive amount of grief over those who have died in Christ. And he's going to come along and he's going to deal with that. And then secondly, he's going to deal with their concerns about the day of the Lord. There's some confusion there and how it relates to those who were in Christ. And so he will deal with that with them as well. So now in verses 13 and 14, we're going to walk through this carefully. And we're going to walk through it and we're going to find out what it says because doctrine matters and it affects how we view life and it affects how we react to life. And so we would say this, doctrine is, net, is, is practical for life and we would also say that the understanding of eschatology or end time events is also significant to your life because it has a, 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 an effect on how your hope is and how you live. As I said, Paul has identified here the key problem. The Thessalonians were in despair over the fate of their fellow believers. Those who had already passed on. It's amazing because this church is probably six months old, or only six months old. There's not a lot of time for people to die, but people had already started to die. And in that time between the founding of the church and Timothy going to visit and coming back and reporting to them, to Paul of their needs, some believers had passed on. Those who had come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ were no longer here. And there was a belief among the Thessalonians and those who were left in the church, those who were still alive, that those who died were now at some disadvantage in the future. In other words, they they thought that that those who were alive in Christ, when he came back, had an advantage over those who had died. They were worried that somehow they had missed something. And the Thessalonians had a vibrant hope for the future. They were waiting for Christ's return. It's not as if they were ignorant of it. In fact, he he speaks back in chapter 1, verse 10, that after they had turned to the true God and living God from idols, what? And to wait for his son from heaven. There was an expectation that God would return. There was an expectation in them. There was this hope. 
fact, it says back in verse 3, they had a steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus in the presence of God and our Father. They looked forward to the time where they were with Jesus in the presence of God the Father. So the problem wasn't that they didn't understand that some things about the future. It's not that they didn't have any idea what was coming. They were actually waiting for the return of Christ. But for them, they were afraid that somehow those who died would miss out in the future age. That if they weren't alive when Christ came, they would miss Christ coming and they would miss out in, in the personally being there when he came and that they would, would not get the resurrected bodies. And so they were grieving for them. They believed somehow that they were going to have a less better existence in the future. Don't know if that was grammatically correct, <laughs> but they, but they, they thought their their future in in their future hope would be compromised, and they wouldn't experience these wonderful promises that had been made to them. And you can see that. You can see that they would grieve for that. After all, if you thought that your fellow if you truly believed this and you saw that your fellow believers die and you thought, man, they're not going to get resurrected bodies and they're not going to see the glories of Christ when he comes, you would be disappointed for them. You would be like, oh man. And and I mean, imagine even yourself. I'm starting to get a little older and we know that just by doing the math, there's less time here. And we know that if Christ doesn't return, what? good possibility, I might miss it too. And so you can see how there would be some anxiety even in those who are left behind. What happens if I die before Christ comes? And so Paul here will address this. He will address them really as a skillful pastor. And we can see Paul's heart here because he doesn't go after them for their their knowledge. He doesn't come after them for their belief. He cares for their grief while showing that right doctrine is actually the solution for their problem. In other words, if they understand actually what's going to take place, they don't need to grieve like this. And so Paul, again, doesn't ridicule them. He doesn't downplay it. He doesn't try to make them feel bad about it. He simply is going to restrict their grief. He's going to get their grief back to where it should be. Right? And so he says, here's what you need to know, Thessalonians, so that you don't grieve like this. And so this morning, as we go through in, in verse 13, we're really going to see the need for accurate knowledge. And in verse 2, we're going to find out that actually that doctrine gives you the answers to life. This doctrine gives you answers to life. So, first of all, we will see here the need for accurate knowledge. He says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as the rest who have no hope. So he begins this, but, and he's again starting this new section, we do not want you to be uninformed. We don't wish this for you. We want to change this for you. And you can hear Paul's heart here again where he's not scolding them, but he's almost taking responsibility. We don't want you to be informed. We, we, we want to tell you this for your good. We, wanna, we want to, to give you the information that is necessary. And so Paul desires to be the one who is able to inform them and to give them this need. And this is typical of Paul. I don't, he says this over and over in Scripture. We don't want you to be uninformed. We want to tell you this. This is what you need to know. I want to be the one who gives it to you. Now I want you to notice 
the way that Paul says this. He says, but we do not want you to be uninformed brethren. So there's this softness here, right? There's a softness in the way that he speaks. He speaks to them as brothers in Christ. He's coming across to them. He's affectionate with them. But I also want you to notice the slight change in the way that he addresses them. There's a little difference in the way that he addresses them here than he has through the rest of the book. There's just a subtle nuance here. In chapter 1, verse 9, he said, we don't have any need to say anything to you. You already know. In 2.1, for you yourselves know. I'm just reminding you. Verse 2.11, just as you know. Verse chapter 4, verse 2, as you know. But now for the first time in the book, he says, I do not want you to be uninformed. I don't want you to be ignorant. For the first time, he is now addressing an area in their life where they need instruction, where they don't know, and, for, and, and something that has not been taught to them. In fact, later on, he says, this has been revealed to me by God. It's been revealed And so for the first time, he really gently addresses them and says, actually, there's an area where you need more information. And he's quite a subtle change in the way he addressed them. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant. There's information you don't have. It's where we get the word agnostic from. And so he says that there's somewhere where your, your, your information is wrong and because your information is wrong, or your convictions are now set wrong and therefore there's a problem. Well, where is their information wrong? Where are they ignorant? Where, where have their convictions been set wrong? Well, he goes on and he says about those who are asleep. Those who are asleep. This is a word that he's going to use several times within this context. He says in verse 14, those who have fallen asleep in in Jesus. Again, he says in verse 15, they've fallen asleep. Verse 16, he says, the dead in Christ will rise first. So again, so he now defines those who are asleep. It's those who are in Christ. In other words, these are believers who are in Christ at their death. In other words, these are Ones who have come to faith are in the sphere of salvation in Jesus Christ, and now they have passed away. Now, it's interesting here because he uses the word sleep. They have fallen asleep. Now, the question becomes, why doesn't he just say they're dead or they died? He doesn't say that, though. He says they're fallen asleep. So is Paul, what is Paul making, what point is he making here? Well, I think there's two things that Paul is doing with this. First of all, Paul is a pastor. And remember, and and I'll say this, he always, every time that we end up addressing a lot of theological issues in Scripture, the purpose is comfort, or the purpose is, is to help someone with information, but it is never just to give a treaty on a topic. So even as he deals with eschatology here, it's ultimately going to be under the pastoral idea of care for those who are grieving or in trouble. And so he's, he doesn't set out just to give us future events for future events. He sets it out because he has a pastoral heart and he is meeting a need of those people. Now, having said that, he uses this word, and we would call this as a euphemism. In other words, it's a word that we use, we often use these, to take a harsh reality and make it softer. So we, when you're dealing with people and you're talking about their death, we, we rarely say they're dead. We say that they've passed on, they're with their Lord, they've gone to heaven, they're no longer with us. They shuffled off this mortal coil. I, I actually started writing down the ones that we have for this one. And we probably have about 50 if you start going. Because we soften the blow. In other words, Paul recognizes that the Thessalonians are, are in pain and anguish. And he's being sensitive to them. And so he says, they're asleep. They're asleep. 
And so there's a gentleness to Paul, and this is, this is the mind of God even as he writes Scripture through Paul, that he, he, he is gentle with them. He's going, to, he's going to give them encouragement, but even on his way to encouragement, he's gentle and kind to them. He doesn't just come down with them and say, you, you dummies, what are you doing? Right? He's gentle and kind. How much should we be like that as well? How much should I be like that? This was kind of rebuking me this week. But anyway, so he says, he says first of all, I'm just, I'm just trying to be gentle with you. I recognize your grief. I'm not minimalizing it. I'm not reckless. I want to comfort you. But I think there's another reason why he uses the word sleep. The word sleep here is actually the word that is just generally used for people who lay, da- lay down and go to sleep. It's often used that way in the fact that, that that's what you do. And it, maybe it's appropriate for death because the, you lay the body down, so you lay down to go to sleep. But it is, a, it is actually the word asleep is the, where we get the word cemetery from. It could be a synonym for dormitory, a place where people sleep. But for the Christian, it, it became a term that meant this was a temporary repose for the believer. In other words, when the body died, it went into the grave and it was a temporary place for him. This was not the permanent resting place of the believer. The body was at rest. Remember when Jesus was with Lazarus. And he said to them, yeah, Lazarus is asleep. And they're like, no, no, by this time the body stinks. Don't go in there, right? And Jesus says, he's asleep, meaning what? He's physically dead. It's meant to speak of physical death. We look at Acts chapter 7, at the stoning of Stephen. Verse 60, falling on his knees, he cried with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, what? He fell asleep. So we're not talking about actual sleep. We're saying what? He passed away. He died. In other words, he was stoned to death. Remember the warnings in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30. Paul says of Christians, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. Again, he refers to Christians who are asleep because they are what? They have died. But it is temporary for the believer. And so there's an encouragement here for those who have what? Fallen asleep. And he says, for the believer, he says, this is a temporary place. In other words, the body is temporary. This is not where they are. And so there is a theological reason that Paul does this because he wants to implant in their mind the temporariness already of the believer in the grave. Having said that, it never, this word never refers to the soul-to-soul sleep. It, it's something that never ever refers to the soul. It only refers to the physical. How do we know that? Well, if we look at verse 16 of this passage, he says this. I'm going to have to flip. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. They will rise first. That word for resurrection, for rise there, is always used in scripture for physical resurrection. It is never, ever used for spiritual resurrection. So every time we find that word, it's speaking of physical resurrection, never spiritual resurrection, never the soul. Second reason that we know it's not is simply this. In Paul's writing, he made it clear. He said in 2 Corinthians 5.8 that he preferred rather to be absent with the body was to be what? at home with the Lord. He didn't say, if I was dead, I would be with my, my soul would be sleeping beside my body in the ground. He said to be absent from the body is to be what? With the Lord. In other words, the soul separates and goes to heaven. In Philippians 1.23, he expressed his desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is much, 
very much better. Paul realized his body would be in the grave, but he would be with the Lord. And he says, it's a very much better. There's a a communion with Christ in life. Jesus promised the repentant thief on the cross, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Luke 23, 43. Again, the idea was what? The body would go to the grave, but ultimately the soul goes to heaven. And so Paul says here, listen, the believers are, have fallen asleep. They are in the grave, but it is only temporary. And he says, I don't want you to be informed about those who are asleep. Those who, those who have died in Christ, those who are in the grave, so that you will not grieve as the rest who have no hope. Now notice this, he does not say, so that you do not grieve. He doesn't say, I don't want you to grieve. Rather, he says, I don't want you to grieve as what? The unbeliever is what he's saying. In other words, he says, Romans tells us that we are to what? Weep with those who weep, Romans 12, 15. That is the normal response to loss. But Paul says there is a sensible, reasonable way to grieve. And it's okay to grieve for those who we are lost, but we also grieve with those who have hope because we recognize that they are only temporarily separated from us. He says, I don't want you to grieve like the unbelievers, those who are separated from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. They are strangers to the covenants of promise. They have no hope and are without God in the world. In other words, there is a grief that has no hope, a hope that is, uh, uh, when death is, has a sense of finality where there's no reunion, no future, never more to touch the hand, to hear the voice, never again to be with them. Now, there were cults who did teach that there was life after death. There was those who did, but pro- most of them thought that there was no life after death, and those who promised life after death, there was no certainty. And we would say this, without the Holy Spirit, there was no witness to them to the reality of resurrection. And so the believer has the Holy Spirit who witnesses to them and they know that there is life after death. And the unbelievers don't have that. And so they grieve. They grieve as without hope, without, without any future. And for these believers, not only they, they were not only grieving the loss, but they also were grieving the fact that they thought their loved ones had missed the return of Christ and maybe even the resurrected bodies. And so they had that greater hope. And maybe in many ways for the Christian at this point, you recognize one of the greatest, what do they say, the greatest thing that kills people is hope. Right? You go to jail, you have hope to get out, and you don't get out, and it ends up killing you. And for the believers, they had been given a hope that they would see, they had thought that Jesus Christ was coming back, his t- return was imminent, and that they thought they were coming back in their lifetime. And when people died, they, 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 they were like, oh no, we had this glorious hope of seeing Jesus Christ at his return. We had the glorious hope of having our resurrected bodies, and now it's been shattered by death. And so you can almost see that there was a a greater hope and now a greater despondency as they grieve for those who had passed away. And Paul says, you, you you need some correct doctrine here. You need some correcting truth here. Because you're grieving in a way that you shouldn't have to grieve. You're grieving in a way that, that a believer shouldn't grieve. And so Paul says, i got to inform you of this. You need correct doctrine in this area because look at the way you are. You are grieving 
you are upset. You're grieving as those who have no hope. Well, Paul not only tells us here that we are to that accurate knowledge is essential. But now he's going to show us that it actually has the answers to life's problems. He's going to tell us that it has the answers to life's problems. In other words, what you know will inform your life. And it is here, he will say, it is essential for you in your understanding and in your grief. He says in verse 14, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. So he begins now to give an explanation and he's going to tell them why they don't need to grieve, why they're misunderstanding, and he's going to give them the theology and the doctrine that they know so that they don't grieve like an unbeliever. Now it says, for if, we stop right there and take a look at that, we're, we're tempted to say, well, maybe there's doubt here. And, and, but this is a first, what we call in the Greek a first-class conditional clause. Yeah, I don't know what it means either. No, but what it means is he's assuming that this is true for the sake of argument. And so Paul is not, say, not, not doubting what's taking place here. Now, a lot of theologians like to translate this since. For since we believe. And Paul could have done that. He could have actually used different words to bring that idea out. But I think when we translate this since, this changes the dynamic of this passage or the dynamic of how he's communicating. And he changes it from being a dialogue to a lecture if he does that. In other words, he, he changes the way he's, he is uh, dealing with them. Because as he translates it with the if, the audience is drawn into the argument. In other words, he wants the people to respond in their mind. And that's why he puts the if in here. He wants them to respond in their mind and he wants them to consider what he's saying and for them to get involved in it. He doesn't want to just tell them. He, he's saying to them this. He wants them, he, their response would be something like this. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and of course we do, you mean that indicates that the dead in Christ will not miss out on the rapture, won't miss out in Christ's second coming. And so he wants them to actually engage in the argument and he wants to engage their minds to say, actually, we do believe this. And so he says, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And this is, this is an astounding thing, really, because he ties eschatology to the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. He ties them together. In other words, what Christ has done in the past affects the future. And what you believe about the Lord Jesus Christ will affect your view of the future. And so he says, we for if we believe that Jesus died, and guess what? We do believe and rose again. Now notice this. He uses the word Jesus died here. He doesn't say that Jesus slept. You notice that? He says, if we believe that what? Jesus died. Why is that? Why would he change that? Why wouldn't he just say Jesus slept? Well, we know this, that Jesus faced the full amount of death for us. When he died on the cross as a substitute for us, he faced the full wrath of God. He took every, the full penalty upon him. He fulfilled all the conditions required by God to pay the penalty for sin.
As one writer says, the difference between Jesus' experience and that of the believers is that he really endured actual separation from God for the world's sin. Because of his real death, Christian's death has been transformed into sleep. In other words, Christ died on the cross. He faced the wrath of God. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the fellowshipping presence of God was removed in some mysterious way that we don't understand. But the Bible tells us that. And then he was restored and raised. But you as a believer, now that you are born again, will never face the wrath of God. You will never be separated from the fellowshipping presence of God. You will never face his wrath like Jesus did. And he says, you, you Thessalonians have believed this. You have believed in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. You recognize that he died for your sin. You recognize that this was the only way to be restored back to God, that he is the one who paid the price for sin. He bore God's wrath in his body for our sins, that we might turn death into sleep. And so now we could say this, Christ made sleep the name of death in the dialect of the church. Christ made sleep the name of death in the dialect of the church. Why? Because he paid for our sins. Right? The wages of sin is death. He has now what? Paid the price for death for the believer. I heard Marshall says, God will treat those who died trusting in Christ in the same way he treated Christ himself, namely by resurrecting them. And so there is, because Christ died and conquered death, we now can have life. And so he says, not only did he, do we believe that he died, but that he was raised. That he was raised. He was, according to 1 Thessalonians 1.10, we wait from, for his son from heaven, whom he what, raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. Romans 10.9, if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 1 Thessalonians, Corinthians 15, for I delivered to you of the first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. And then he goes on in the chapter about how Christ was raised and that because he is raised, we will be raised. And so Paul really says there are two historical realities that you must believe to be a Christian. There are two things that you cannot deny. In fact, we would say this, you have no basis to call yourself a Christian if you do not believe in the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, jo- and Paul says, because of his bodily resurrection from the dead, because of Christ's death, he says, because we believe, because we believe these we have the answer to the dilemma of death. Because we believe that Jesus died and rose again, if we are a believer, believe that he rose again, this is a steadfast anchor. He says, because we, we, can, we understand, therefore, the rest of this, because we recognize that Jesus Christ has been rose, died and rose again. So he says, if we believe that Jesus has rose again, and here comes the then clause, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. The second half is certain because we believe the first half. Because we believe the first half, because Jesus died and rose again, then what we're about to say is certain. So we will bring him back to life. 
And because we believe that God will bring with him, that automatically leads to another certainty. And that certainty is that God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Now this verb here, bring, is fascinating. There's a lot of theology that rests on this little word. It's the little verb, ago. It's in the future here. And it's one of the small, smallest words in the Greek language. And there's a lot of theology here. The idea means to lead or to bring. God will lead or bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep. Now it immediately raises the question, and we will go further into this as we go through the passage. The question that is raised here though is, where does God lead them? With Jesus, with where does God lead those with Jesus who are fallen asleep, the saints? Where do they go? Well, there are basically two ways you can go here. There are two options, to earth or to heaven. And as we go through this text, we're going to establish this reality that it is to heaven that they are going. In the context of 1 Corinthians 4, it is to heaven. It is to heaven where they are headed. Those who have already died would in no way miss out on the marriage supper of the Lamb. There's no way that they would miss out on the blessings of the next events in, in eschatology, in God's plan. They would no, no way miss out on it because God will lead them. He will bring them with Jesus to heaven for the next stage. And there is certainty here. Robert Thomas writes, the words of God will bring to a, a continuing movement, well, the words of God will bring, point to a continuing movement heavenward after the meeting in the air. You can go down to verse 17 and there it speaks of the moment of the resurrection. How first those who died first received their bodies and then we who will remain will receive our resurrected bodies. And then the movement is upward. The movement is in the same way as the ascension. It is upward into the clouds and, there, and it is there that we will meet the Lord in the air. And so when we look at this verse and we come back to this verse 14, that God will bring the idea of a continuing moment, movement to heaven until we arrive in the Father's presence. Until we arrive in the Father's presence. And this is, goes there because God the Father is in heaven. So the verb he will bring indicates the destination of Jesus and those who are with him is upward, not downward. As one writer says, at the moment Jesus returned in the air, the company named will not move back to the earth, but toward the Father's presence of God in heaven. God will bring, will lead with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. And so Paul says, here's the good news. Those who have fallen asleep will not miss out on those events to come. They will not miss out on the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so he says, those who died in Christ, therefore will not miss the gathering of our Lord Jesus Christ. When he descends, it says here, he says the dead in Christ will what rise first and we are, will remain, will go what with him. So shall we ever what? Be with the Lord. Now you might say, it seems like you've just read commentators and you're not really giving me any scripture to back this up. I hope some of you thought that. Because we never want to go to commentators for our authority, right? But if we look at Paul's prayer in, three, in chapter 3, he says this, now may, the, may, now may God our Father... May God and the Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you and may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people as we, just as also we do so that we may establish your hearts 
without blame in holiness, what? Before God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. That's a reference there to what we're just talking about here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This is a meeting where? In heaven, before God with all his saints. We will, we will be established in holiness before God and the Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ as he takes us and takes us back to the Father in heaven. We will be established in holiness. This event doesn't happen on earth. It happens in heaven. So we will be there and we will receive full reward before God. Now, as we close, I want you to notice just one little phrase here. And I think, again, the purpose of eschatology always is hope. It is always hope. And I want you to think about this, this little phrase, with him. With him. It refers to our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, there's going to be a transition that will occur with all of us in Christ. Our longing will be to be, it should be to be with him. Right now as believers, we are said to be what? In Christ. And we have that mystical union that we, and we're united with Christ and we can't really put our finger on it. It's a state that we're in right now. That's why we call it a mystical union with Christ. But there's something better than that for us. There's something better than that for us in being with, in Christ. And it will be changed into something incomparably better. And that is what? The actual presence of Christ. The actual presence of Christ. That is what we look forward to not just in soul, but in our complete composition, in body and soul, and this is what awaits us. In that state, not just in Christ, but we will exist with Him. Is that not the hope of the believer? That we are what? With Him. We shall see Him what? Face to face. It's interesting because as Jesus was again comforting His disciples in John chapter 14, Again, over loss because he was going away. Jesus said, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. That is our hope. It gives us a wonderful perspective and stability in dealing with loss. We will be with him, all of those who are his. And so we look forward to that time. And so again, we point out simply this. We cannot separate the doctrine of atonement from future things. They're they're connected. I must believe certain things in order to believe certain things, and I must know that the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ and where it leads. And I would say this. Eschatology is essential to our present life. It is often passed off as something that we, we stay away from, we shy away from, and it's controversial. But Paul says it's essential to, what, to our present life. We need to know. And then lastly, I would just simply say this. The only way to deal with things in life is to have proper doctrine. Now, we, 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 we have the empowering of the Holy Spirit to live out those truths. But you can't live victoriously without knowing the truth. And so doctrine, we, we often say the freest person 
The Christian life is, is a free life because when you live in the truth, there is freedom. And there's answers for all of life's problems. And Paul says here, a correct understanding of doctrine, the correct understanding of what's going to take place in the future gives you comfort. You don't have to grieve as those without hope because there is hope because all believers will be resurrected. All believers will be given a new body. All will meet the Lord Jesus Christ. No one is going to miss out in future events because they die now. We will all meet together. And I find it interesting here because I certainly think there was a desire to see one another again. And, and, and that's, that's good. But I actually think the primary concern here was not that I get to see the others in heaven, but they missed, they missed seeing the Lord Jesus Christ when he returned. Shouldn't that be our concern for one another? That is our primary concern. I don't want you in heaven so I can see you, though that's true but I primarily want you there so that you can enjoy the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope that is the prayer of our hearts. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we again thank you for your word, and we thank you that you have given it to us, and even as we are instructed today, that it teaches us it teaches us truths that help us to cope with life and to be pleasing to you. And I pray this morning that we would go away encouraged here this morning, recognizing your word has the answers for our future. And that in our salvation and in our understanding of the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, in it, it sets the direction for our future. And we praise and thank you for that. I pray that we would go forth here again, recognizing that we too have the hope of being resurrected and, and being given a new body and seeing you face to face. And I pray that that would be our desire every day in your name. Amen.